Welcome to In House, the stage door podcast that explores the ins and outs of London's most exciting and innovative theatres. My name is Terry Paddock, and this week I'm here at the Gate Theatre, where I'm joined by artistic director Ellen McDougall. Ellen, thanks so much for having me here today. It's great uh, to take the time to see you on, a, on what is a very early Friday morning. So thanks very much. As we sit down to talk today, um, you are just coming to the end of your first season and you've announced your second, which is really exciting. But let's just uh, rewind for a minute um, and talk about the theatre itself. Can you just give us a potted history of the gate? I'll do my best. Okay. Um, Yes, it was founded in 1979 by Lou Stein. Um, And at that time, it was very much a kind of pub theatre. He told me when I met him, they had to have people join as members in order to get around the fire regulations of letting everyone up to this tiny room above a a theatre. And then I think a few years after that, they slightly expanded the playing space. So actually the theatre that we use now is slightly bigger than the one that where it began but it's exactly the same location it's never moved it's always it's been there. 75 seats now so that's pretty yeah. intimate so was it yeah. even fewer I when think so started? yeah I think so I'm not sure of the exact numbers but I think it was it was smaller and he told me that the stage was pretty much fixed so you would come into the space and you would walk across the stage to reach your seat which made for lots of brilliant stories about particular latecomers coming on amazing and ending up sort of in the show yeah um Yes, he told me a very good anecdote, actually, just while we're on the very founding moments of the gate. But the first, one of the first gate sort of patrons and donors was Mick Jagger. Amazing. And he brought along his friend David Bowie to come see a show. And they both arrived late and ended up on stage. And Lou said, you know, it was unclear who was more surprised then or the actors to suddenly be joined on stage by these two massive rock stars. Incredible. Um, And the show apparently just sort of stopped for a moment. Everyone sort of looked at each other and then they went off and, and sat in the audience in the the actors just sort of carried on um but I think yeah Lou's kind of focus and and something that has remained true for all the artistic directors that have come since that include people like Thea Sharrick um Natalie and Carrie uh, that's Natalie Abrahami and Carrie Cracknell Erica Wyman um Chris Hayden was my predecessor there's there's a there's a kind of illustrious list of people and of course Stephen Daldry who everyone everyone um quotes as being like you know the kind of golden golden years at the gate towards the beginning um he took over from actually I can't remember but he 90 he's only here for two years 90 yeah that's right he went on to run the royal court straight after which was sort of why I think his time was was shorter also David Farr Erica Wyman who's now at the RSC so yes quite an illustrious list as you say that's right um but Lou founded it with a very particular interest in international theatre um he was particularly interested in Russian expressionism but mm-hmm. um, there was always this thing in the DNA of the gate about um, looking outside our borders um, for stories and plays and, and ideas um, so I think that that was always something that I was really really appealed to me about this place that you would go and see something that maybe you wouldn't find on other stages in London. And um, do you recall when you personally first learned about the gate? Yes, I do. Um, I first came to the gate to see work that Natalie and Carrie were making when I first graduated. And I just loved the fact that every, that was the other thing really I suppose to say about the theatre is that that tiny room is fully flexible. So every time you come, uh, it's configured in a totally different way. And that was certainly something that 
I loved about the first few visits I came to the gate, I, I can remember almost really clearly, I would say, um, each of the different sets I saw. And I, I genuinely couldn't understand how they were in the same room um, because that everything was totally kind of the other way around, whatever. And you thought, there must be another space up here. How have they, <laughs> how have they done this? Um, so, yeah, that's that's the other thing, I suppose. It's the, it's the space and the kind of international focus. And I think there's always been a kind of sense of daring about the programming here. And I've, I feel very... Um, empowered, I suppose, by the by by the history of what's come before, that it is a place that welcomes people who want to take risks. Mm-hmm. Um, Peter Hall said um, in his diaries he directed a play here while Mick Gordon, who was another one of the artistic directors, while Mick Gordon was in charge, and um, he wrote in his diary while he was in tech, sitting in the tiny gate theatre, and um, he talks about the fact that he thinks that other it sounds as though he sort of shot the play around other theatres in London and lots of people had said they didn't want to do it. Um, and he said that he had the feeling that that wasn't because they didn't like the play, but because they didn't dare to do it. Mm. And he says the gate and its artistic director, Mick Gordon, dare to do it. And I kind of find that a very helpful um, thing to remember is also part of the DNA here. Yeah, dare to be daring. Yeah. And so uh, you were appointed in August 2016 and took over in March 2017. But in fact, um, as you've already alluded to, your relationship with the gate started, in fact, long before you were appointed artistic director. You had already been working here for some time. Can you tell us what you were doing previous to being AD? Yeah, that well, I had two jobs at the gate before I became artistic director. One was I was a script reader mm-hmm. when I first graduated um, for about six months, I think, not very long, but it was during Natalie and Carrie's time and it was my first script reading job. Uh-huh. And I remember being sent these amazing plays from all around the world and some were kind of old books that were, you know, about different things. And so it was just such an interesting range of work that they were considering. And then the other job I had was in 2012 till 2013, I was the associate director here under Chris Hayden. So when he first took over, I did about a year Mm -hmm. with him then. Um, And at the end of that uh, job, actually a little bit after I directed a show here in 2014 at Domineus. Mm-hmm. So, yes, I had I had made work here, and um, and I sort of knew, I suppose, the office and yeah. how it sort of works. Although it's quite a different place now than it was then. I think. Oh well, I want to talk about that, but but let's um, remember when Chris was here and uh, had announced that he was leaving. You saw that the job was coming up. Why did you decide I'm going to go for that? I think I've always felt. Uh, an affinity with this building I don't know that I would have applied to run a different building it's always been one that I thought if that came up I would I would probably go for it Mm -hmm. Um, I think one of the things I love about it is how small it is again going back to that thing of being able to take risks it feels like it's a theatre that can be led by an artist I suppose and because there are only 75 seats there is the possibility of doing things that you don't know if they're going to work. There isn't such a huge pressure on box office income that there might be in larger spaces. Mm -hmm. Although, of course, we still want to sell out and to make work that's really popular. Um, At the same time, that doesn't have to be such a driving force behind the decision making. Mm -hmm. So that's incredibly liberating. So you Um, almost have permission to fail and 
and to be daring as exactly yeah and I think also because it is a really small team it feels manageable and fleet of foot mm-hmm. and I suppose it's a for everyone to some degree it's a passion project to work here because it's small there's not very much money yeah. you know we do everything we work we all work incredibly hard um and we really I, I think it's the belief in what we're doing and how much we care about the artists that we're working with that is a big part of what what drives this place there's definitely a kind of energy and excitement um in this building that yeah um yes we should point out that the office is across the street from the theater so yeah. um that little intimate space is um for performance alone you can't squeeze in extra offices as well unfortunately no it'd be great <laughs> it'll be in the same space but we have yeah we have two dressing rooms over there um and the, a very tiny foyer um a shower which <laughs> you might not you might not quite believe um and and the theater yeah and uh indeed uh, handily having the shower there because in one of the shows in your first season uh one of the artists indeed the the director um lived on the stage didn't she that's right yeah she lived, <laughs> she lived in the theater as part of the show amazing um it was a play or a text that was looking at uh, capitalism and our relationship to that. And one of Jude's kind of focuses for the production that she made was to do with the the relationship between being an artist and living in London mm-hmm. and the kind of housing, cost of housing. So they made an installation in the foyer that was about... Um, imagining the gate space being taken over by a development company turning it into a penthouse suite so actually to, on the on my desk I've kept some of the plans that the designer made up about you know luxury apartments and what that might be like to reimagine your future at the gate um and so as part of that Jude kind of squatted in the theatre again she yes that's the important bit of information Jude spent a lot of her early career um as a what are they called guardian property guardians yeah where you have absolutely no security in where you're living and you're often living in places that would be totally unacceptable for people to live in but um it's very very cheap yes uh so it's a way that people who don't have other means to live in london can can live in london um so that was sort of partly a reference to her to her living living there but yeah she had she had a bedroom that was on stage part of the set and then in the in the dressing room she had a little um hob that is just like a plug-in electric hob and then the shower and um and that was that really yeah it was amazing, it was amazing. uh so this is the director jude christian that's yes. right yeah um, and the play was uh falk richter's am i pronouncing that correctly yeah. uh trust that's right um which was one of um, a great highlights from your first season which we'll, we'll come back to but but speaking of of jude um a young female director obviously you are a female director in fact you're not the first female artistic director here at the the gate mm-hmm. we've already talked about thea sherrick and um uh, its co-directors natalie abrahami and carrie Cracknell. So, and Erica Wyman. Of course, Erica Wyman. Yeah. Which was uh, when was she here? That was uh, before many years. Thea. Yeah, yeah, indeed. So you've had, so this this pioneering theatre, the Gate, has had many um, female artistic directors who've done pretty incredibly well mm. um, in terms of gender equity and diversity. Mm. Um, do you think? Why do you think that is? I I I couldn't tell you. I just imagine that that we had a board at the time who 
more open-minded and I suppose it's also related to that thing about artistic risk and kind of going you know at the time that Erica was appointed I I don't know how many other female artistic directors there were in London but I imagine that it wasn't 50-50 so it was in some ways kind of going against the grain and and this building has always been somewhere that goes against the grain so I guess that's sort of how that came about but I do it's interesting that you point that out Terry because it's not something that I think about um, a lot in terms of the the history of this building but I wonder how much subconsciously it's one of the things that also made me feel like I could have a home here Mm. and I think that really speaks to how important it is to have gender parity and diversity on our stages but also in all of our buildings the way they're run because if you're a young theatre maker and you see someone who looks like you or who has the same identity as you doing something I do think that has a massive influence on you imagining yourself doing it yeah um and I I can only, I suppose that that's one of the reasons that I felt that this place appealed to me I, I fell in love with it when it was being run by two women so, yeah um, well it's it's interesting because this obviously touches on um, you know much wider issues in society and and in the arts generally in terms of um, diversity matters and and it is something that comes across in the way that you speak and clearly in the way that you program whether consciously or unconsciously and um, indeed when you announced your inaugural s- uh, season you said we know from our experience here at the gate that diverse teams make for better conversation better insight and better work um, so so I've said it's maybe conscious or unconscious but do do you bear diversity in mind when you're programming and deciding who you want to work on your shows and the, the, the things you want to program I want I always want there to be an eclectic range of voices and ideas yeah. and um, I think that really drives the the decisions um, everyone that is working here is someone who I think is a completely brilliant original thinker mm. Um, and I also think it's really important to, in the process of, I suppose what it is, is about the process of finding artists, isn't it? It's not so much the process of selecting because that becomes about excellence, but what it needs to be about is when you're, when you're looking for artists and when you're thinking about who's, who you'd like to have conversations with is, is seeking out those, that, that wide range of voices and and getting to know people and what they're interested in and what they, the way they see the world. Mm. Um, and that will inevitably mean that you end up with a program that is from multiple viewpoints and about multiple different ways of, of thinking and seeing. Mm. Um, and that's that to me is is at the core of what what we do. Okay. Um, another thing that comes across in in the programming is obviously you you've talked about the um, the history of internationalism here at the gate, which which you continue to honour brilliantly. Um, but you've also said that in uh, linked to that you also focus on the local um so that that's is that a contradiction to look internationally and locally at the same time and if not why not great question um no i don't think it's i don't think it's a contradiction and i think that is because when you think about what's happening in a theater when there is a play is there is a live audience who have traveled from where they live or walked or whatever to that space but then what happens in that space can take you anywhere in the world um or can focus on any question and the whole point of it is that it probably isn't something that is maybe just right in front of you although of course that can be true as well Mm. um so to me the very essence of theater is about that tension between 
the liveness of it and the, I suppose the local quality of it that we're all here in this room together um, but we can imagine something else yeah going back to when you're appointed in August 2016 um, a rather significant event <laughs> world event happened um, less than two months before and that of course was the EU referendum um, June 2016 um, and at the time of your announcement I'm, I'm quoting you back to yourself again um, you said it seems to me that now more than ever an approach that looks beyond national borders and recognition of our common humanity is completely essential and completely essential to making theatre that asks big questions about what it means to be alive now. Do you want to expand on that? That is certainly a part of the way or the things that I look for in in, in projects that we might programme here. It feel, Yeah, it sort of feels that you, you have to be part of the conversation mm. um, and you have to be active in your, in your relationship to those things. If you're not actively resisting the things that you disagree with, you may as well be complicit. And I think that that is a really helpful way of thinking about what we're doing um, or what the opportunity that we have here is, mm. which is to bring people together to ask questions about what's happening and to recruit people to think actively about their choices and about about their position in the world and about what's happening in the world. Um, that said, I instinctively sort of tend to resist work that feels limited to uh, political with a capital P and limited to a very specific thing although as I'm saying that I'm thinking well you've programmed Twilight Los Angeles 1992 which is literally about three days in a very specific place but I suppose the thinking around that was also about that text is over 30 years old um is that right over 30 yes yeah 35 Mm. 36 or 26? <laughs> 92, 92. 2002. 2000, yeah. To, uh, to yeah. 20 something years old. 20 something. 20. No, hang on. 92. So yeah, 2002. That's 20. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so 26. 26, not 36. 26. Um, the so 90s seemed like only yesterday to me. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I'm suddenly like, oh my goodness, that's crazy. I know. I, I must really be 50. Confused. I know. I get really confused when we talk about the 90s being decades ago because it seems so recent. So we, and actually I remember when we, when we first met I was I had just announced that and you yeah. were saying that you remember it I, so well I, and you well, had just moved to the UK. That's right so so to explain Twilight 1992 has to do with the Los Angeles riots yes um, and yes I, I'm American and I was explaining to Ellen how um how vividly that occurs to me because it was just after I moved to the UK and it was my first time as an American living abroad feeling shame for my home mm. country and seeing how our country, my country was mm. viewed by the rest of the world that could be viewed mm-hmm. um, it was really disturbing so but it, yeah so that was an important piece I think that you, um, you produced but it is about a specific moment in time but as you say there is more perspective on that because that because was of that nearly 30 years ago. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And I think, and also the important thing to remember is that the politics around race are different in this country than they are in America. And actually, some of the statistics that Ola um, included in her production of that text brought into the kind of stark focus that while we... And Ola is... Ola Ince, sorry, okay. who's a, who directed that show. Okay. Um brought kind of into really stark focus that while we sometimes think that America has a real problem with race, 
we do in this country as well mm-hmm. and actually the statistics around um police violence and prison populations are as bad if not worse in this country mm. it's just that we're not talking about it mm. so that production was very much about and i suppose this goes back to your to the to the quote was about having that conversation yeah. having that difficult conversation as an audience and as a community yeah as well as in the production itself yeah it's interesting to me that you you um have distinguished between producing something that's political with a capital versus a lowercase p we've alluded to you know so much of what you program is highly political funny isn't it um so maybe it is i just need to deal with that (laughs) (laughs) and i think political with a capital p is i suppose I have an association with that of a particular type of play and of course that isn't really what that is. Um, I, I I tend to sort of re- instinctively resist it because I feel as though I, or I associate it with a kind of didacticism and mm. a kind of um, full stop and an idea about educating an audience about something and none of those are things that I'm interested in doing. I'm interested in imagination and asking questions and being playful and um, meeting the audience in those questions mm. rather than ever kind of educating people about uh, something that they should uh, agree with. Right. Uh, And I suppose that's where I've been resisting that term. But of course, the term itself has nothing to do with the style in which you do those things. So if you had to look back in your first year, can you say any great lessons that you learned from this eclectic programme or the the process of actually running the theatre? I mean, lots, I think, probably. It's so funny because I think you just absorb those things and then it sort of influences the way you do something next. Um, I suppose one of the things that I I loved about it was trusting the artists to make the work they're going to make and supporting them to do to make things that I wouldn't necessarily make rather than I suppose the version of it where you try to make everything in your own image yeah um so that's been really exciting yeah fantastic so you now just announced your uh, second season again you're saying that you're there is no theme to this season as there wasn't to the first but but nevertheless incredibly eclectic talk us through the highlights of season two under Ellen Dougal. Um, so we have um, the first classic play that I'm that I've programmed, which we're opening because all of the, all of the shows that we did this year were in a way new ish plays or contemporary writing. Um, so we have a classic play by Jean Cocteau called The Human Voice, and uh, it's a new translation by Daniel Raggett, who will also direct the show. Mm-hmm. It's a one woman show about our relationship with technology, so it's about a phone call. Mm. between a woman and her lover and um, it's a very intense very intimate play really so it it will sit really nicely in our space so in September the human voice Uh, that's right yeah that's the first show of the season and the second show in the season is called A Small Place it's by a writer called Jamaica Kincaid and it's actually kind of an essay slash short story um, which Anna Hamali Howard will direct and it imagines a tourist going on holiday to Antigua but it tells the story of the history of colonialism and the relationship between black and white people in that place so it's a very visceral intense piece of text I suppose and Anna is I'm sure going to make something really exciting Um, the next play then is Sarah Rule's Dear Elizabeth uh, which you yourself are directing Uh, Sarah Rule that's uh, quite a coup tell us 
uh, who she is and why this play is significant. Yeah, she's an incredibly successful writer uh, in based in New York. Um, she's had a few productions in this country. Um, and she's won various awards that, again, I'm sure you can tell me better than me. I think she's won a Pulitzer. Yeah, she's or... been uh, a Pulitzer finalist twice, um, nominated for a Tony, Susan Smith, uh, Blackburn Prize winner. Um, That's right. And uh, the plays that have been seen here, um, quite fairly controversial, actually, um, in the next room, uh, subtitled The Vibrator Play, yeah. <laughs> which was about um, a vibrator, uh, women's uh, first experiences with vi- a vibrator room. Uh, and the clean house um but yes uh, so how familiar have you personally been with sarah's work um i know a few of her plays and i always have enjoyed reading them um the only production of a play of hers that i've seen was eurydice which atc did uh just after they did the brother's size mm-hmm. uh that bijan shabani directed um this is a very different text in 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 a lot of ways um and it's a It's a curious play. It's something that I just fell in love with when I read. And I kind of thought, I don't really know if I could do that play. I mean, everything that we've been speaking about in terms of being political with a capital P is absolutely not that. Mm. Um, But everyone that I gave it to to read, I sort of gave it to them and said, look, this is a this is a. unusual text about two poets that so far most people I've spoken to in this country haven't even heard of Mm. Robert Lowell and Elizabeth Bishop I suppose they have a kind of cult following or a cult um thing in in the states that that they that hasn't carried across so much here yeah um and so I've you know I've given it to people and kind of gone look this is about these two slightly obscure American poets have a read and without fail everyone that read it was so moved by it and found it so profoundly um hopeful beautiful devastating that I just thought yeah if this is a place where you can take risks this is a very different kind of risk but I'm going to take it because I I just love this play it says that um, the, your press release says that um these uh, poets Bishop and Lowell wrote over 400 letters to each other over many decades um uh, are they love letters or were they were they in a romantic relationship? No. No. It's a friendship. Wow. It's a friendship that lasted a lifetime. And they, yeah, so exactly. So the text is made up of letters. So Sarah has taken all of the letters and just organised them in this very brilliant, heartbreaking kind of way. They're chronological mm. and they just tell the story of these two people's lives. They meet um, in their late 20s, early 30s when they're both starting to have a little bit of success but kind of on that brink of going, who are we going to be and what are we going to do with our lives? Yeah. And there's a moment uh, when they become very, very close, very intimate. Robert Lowell nearly proposes to Elizabeth Bishop and he later talks about how that was the one might have been of his life that this one sort of regret or this one thing that never quite happened for him um elizabeth bishop was a lesbian and she ended up in a relationship with a woman they lived in brazil for most of her life um but both of them had kind of lives i suppose lived on the edge of both sanity and health um and all kinds of all kinds of complications and and challenges and it feels to me that those letters are kind of like a lifeline that they just had between them they barely ever meet in person but they just have this kind of um yeah lifeline between between these two very extreme uh lives i love the idea too of having written 400 letters I mean letters do you think we've lost something that we don't write letters anymore when was the last time you wrote a letter 
Yeah, a few years ago. <laughs> I used to write letters to my grandparents, but since they've all passed away, I kind of yeah. don't have anyone to write to. Um, yeah, I think it's a real... I mean, certainly this this text really shows there's a kind of intimacy that comes from writing something that you know won't be read for a few weeks. Yeah. Uh, and kind of putting down your most your most secret or unresolved thoughts and kind of trying to work them out on paper and then sending it to someone else to take their view of it. Uh, It's a very kind of wonderful insight into someone's psychology and their experience. There's some wonderful works of art based on letters, you know, books and other plays. And um, I just, I'm I'm trying to think of if there have been any ones that reach those heights that are based on emails or Twitter messages. I don't know, it doesn't seem to have the same weight to it does it I don't know it's interesting yeah I think I'd be very interested to read a kind of intense relationship over email <laughs> or um or text message whatsapp yeah I don't know I don't know interesting I'm sure it's coming but meanwhile coming after uh, dear Elizabeth uh, in this second season of yours is the ridiculous darkness a radio play for the stage what's that about it is um, an adaptation of Apocalypse Now, uh, which is itself an adaptation of Heart of Darkness, mm-hmm. which I think itself is not an adaptation, but it's certainly influenced by these uh, Victorian novels that were about, you know, explorers going going to places like Africa. There's, there's novels like uh, King Solomon's Mines or, you know, these kind of adventure stories of mm-hmm. uh, co- co- colonial a kind of colonial journey into this idea of darkness or this idea of the unknown Mm. um and it kind of takes that idea and turns it on its head um and as it says it's a radio play it's um it relies a lot on sound unreliable narrators um and it's a kind of post-dramatic text it's it's kind of um it's full of brilliant small stories that all add up to a bigger story and it's very very funny um and it really kind of shines a light on on the the idea of gaze and which from which point of view are we looking at something and, Mm. and in a way holding a mirror up back to ourselves um and that is by Wolfram Lotz. That's right, who's a German writer. Okay, um, and it is um, conceived and directed by associate director here at the gate, Anthony Simpson-Pike. That's right. Finally, you finish the season with Shubak. What is that? So Shubak is a festival of Arab culture mm-hmm. um, that take, that works with artists who are both based in the Arab world and the diaspora. Um, and what we'll be doing with them is programming a kind of I suppose like a a mini festival within the festival Um, and it'll be a program of theatre work that will happen at the gate. So we're currently um, selecting productions that that exist already, um, working with artists who mostly have never presented their work in the UK before yeah. and will come here and have a few performances of their, of their shows. So there'll be a kind of range of work that you can come and see over that time and it will it will coincide with Shoeback Festival, which is a biannual, okay. so every two years. Yeah. That's what that word means, right? I always biannual. get confused between biannual and biennial. It sounds to me like it should be tw- twice a year, bi- biannual, but I think, I think it means biennial. biennial. So every two years. Anyway, <laughs> yeah. never mind. We'll Google it. Um, but anyway, it's every two years and it's in July 2019. So we'll just currently selecting the artists and and uh, yeah so that is another uh, full year that uh, you have announced do you always announce uh, an entire year at a time um well 
Always. I have twice now. Um, <laughs> but so, is that a gate tradition or no, is that an Ellen tradition? Yeah. I, before that, um, Chris Hayden tended to, tended to announce two or three shows at a time. Mm-hmm. Um, and generally he did do themed seasons. So there was a, always a kind of linking question or idea behind all of the shows. And um, when I started, it kind of came about through both practical and, and artistic reasons that I decided to announce a wider range of work mm-hmm. that, took a, that took a year. Um so I've stuck with that for the second one. I may not continue. I don't know. Okay. It seems to be working so far. And I, I quite enjoy having a kind of body of work that, that enables you to work on a huge range of things. Again, going back to that thing of there not, not being a theme. Yeah. Yeah. And, but to do a full year in advance. And I guess once you've announced it, you're like, OK, now I know what I'm doing for the next one. Yeah, it's quite nice. <laughs> but uh, also must be challenging to get people's um, schedules um, sorted so far in advance. Is that... Exactly. Yeah, I mean, Shoeback is going to happen anyway, so that's that's quite an easy one. Yeah. Um, and Anthony, who will direct uh, Ridiculous Darkness, Anthony Simpson Pike, who is my associate director here, is working full time here anyway, so it's kind of part of his yes. job here. So that makes that one quite straightforward. Easy. So, how far in advance then do you plan your program beyond? So, you've already got the second season out of the way. Are you already yeah, starting work on the next? You're already starting. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, especially if you want to work with international artists, they're usually booked. Yeah. Much further in advance um and it takes time to put together projects that aren't just pick up a play and find a director for it and off you go mm. um and and kind of not so many of the shows in the season are that uh, mm. in a way so um yeah it's important to plan and actually the season after this one is going to be our 40th anniversary oh amazing so we've got we i want a long lead in time for that one so yeah. that we can make some really really exciting um big projects that will be uh, yeah that is 19 now we now we know how the decades work 1979 um but uh, also um how do you keep your antennae fresh? I mean, especially when you're looking at international work, mm. how do you know what's out there? How are you um, uh, finding, identifying work that you think will be right for the game? Meeting people, talking to people. Um, I go and see a lot of work, uh, especially um, in other places or international festivals, and try and get a handle on you know the interesting emerging artists from other places. Mm. Um, read a lot of plays. I suppose it comes down to taste mm. as well, which is hard to identify. But as, I, as I've said, you know, it's things that I feel will sit really well in the space, things that have an active relationship with the audience. It's pretty hard to have a fourth wall in that room. Mm. I think we always know we're there. I mean, I would argue that you always know you're there even in the, you know, most intense fourth wall yeah <laughs> you know but but anyway needless it feels like a conversation so so work that that is that has a robustness to it that that can do that feels feels like it would sit well yeah in the gate um and I think it's just things that that bring a different perspective that's what I'm always interested in a kind of going uh, that are off off beat or off the beaten track or from a different angle Fantastic. Um, can you recall, Ellen, why did you want to become a director in the first place? I don't know. I think it's always been in me in some ways, or this idea of being able to make something has, is always something that I've loved to do. And I'm instinctively quite collaborative. So I suppose rather than being an artist chiseling a pot, mm. 
I'd rather work with people and have a have a conversation and and and, and let something emerge yeah. through those dialogues. Um, and I've always loved storytelling and telling stories and what that does and where that can take you. So I guess those ingredients have all sort of led me okay. imaginatively to it. But from a practical point of view. Um, I really didn't know what to do when I left university and I um, thought I uh, would quite like to work in TV or, or theatre or something like that. Something that would something that would allow me to keep reading. I suppose that was the thing that I knew I loved. I loved reading things when I was at university and I wanted something, I wanted a, a job that would keep me curious. Mm-hmm. And um, so I thought I'd be a script reader or a literary manager or something like that. And then I thought I'll have a go at directing and I just sort of fell in love with it, I think. Fantastic. Um, I did the Young Vic introduction to directing course. That was sort of how I found a way in. Okay. Um, and you said before that you hadn't necessarily seen yourself running a theatre um, and perhaps it is the gate, running the gate really that appealed to you. Can you imagine running another theatre after this? Maybe. Maybe. Okay. I like it more than I thought I would. Really? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think I always knew I would love running the gate, but I always thought, well, it, it's all about the gate. And actually running the gate has made me think, yeah, maybe I could run somewhere else. Because there are very different demands, as you've touched on earlier, directing a show and running a building. Yeah. Yeah. Do you do you enjoy that balance, finding that balance? Um, that's a challenge, I think, is is carving out enough time to make my own work mm-hmm. alongside the demands of running a building. But um, I love both sides of it, and it's quite nice to have different modes, you know, to be in. So it's refreshing to not always be in director mode producing work because that is incredibly demanding um and actually being able to shift your focus onto a slightly wider lens and looking at our company as a whole and what it's doing is quite a nice relief I think from tunneling into a play I noticed in the first season you directed two shows and this one you're directing one is it is it with recognition of that fact that the demands of directing and running the show running the building at the same time no two shows is absolutely fine as as a workload I could probably do more but I think it's about um just the volume of brilliant artists around that I want to give a platform to and the different ideas that have come through that have gone, yeah, that story needs to be told. Um, and someone else can tell it better, perhaps. Yeah, absolutely. And um, and Schubach, you know, is a kind of um, brilliant, different thing for us to do um, that involves bringing work that already exists. So, um, yeah, that's really been the thing behind it rather than rather than a, a workload question. Um, and there's so many projects that I'm really excited to be doing here, but they're not in this next season. They're kind of coming up. So Okay. So as we wind up then, let me just um, ask you to look even further forward. You're planning the 40th anniversary season. If you had to imagine 40 years from now that the, the gate is celebrating its 80th or whatever, maybe 20 years from now, wh- where do you see the theatre where would you like it to be and what would you like to have your contribution to have been to that journey well I think one of the things that the gate is does very well and is is and should and it and and does do is is um find exciting artists and um the focus on on celebrating and and giving a platform to a really diverse range of voices I hope that will mean that in the future we have a more diverse industry as a whole and that those voices kind of continue to be part of the conversation those artists 
Um, I think that there's something about looking outwards and being brave enough to program things that don't necessarily look like plays or might be different. Um, I think that's happening more and more, but um, yeah, maybe it would be nice to imagine that 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 also um, continues. I think there's also something that I feel really passionate about that is about rigour and about the questions that are being asked and it, it relates to risk which is about the kind of depth of questioning and and the integrity of risky artistic ideas. It's not risk is, you know, you can sometimes think that means just doing something mad. But actually, I think what it really means is doing something with a full integrity that means that you don't necessarily please the expectations of people because you're really following something. Do you know what I mean? There's a sort of distinction there. And I think that's something that I that I think would be a really good um, legacy or something that, that I hope would be carried forward that's to do with going, let's really properly ask these questions and let's find the forms in theatre in theatre making that will ask those questions the best rather than just relying on the on the, the usual ones. Fantastic. Okay, so Ellen, final question. Elevator pitch to any of those theatre goers out there who, for whatever reason, might not yet have been to the gate. Program aside, why should they come to this theatre? I think our work is always defies expectations. It always asks questions, but it, sh- it always is an enjoyable, engaging, playful experience. My main thing is you won't be bored. (laughs) Definitely won't be bored. And I have not been at all bored talking to you. Thank you so much. So theatre goers out there, if you're excited by the fantastic work that we've been discussing here, um, do follow the Gate Theatre on the Stage Door app. Uh, The clever little algorithms at the Stage Door will keep you up to date with all your favourite theatre makers and help you discover exciting new work. Ellen, thank you so much again for joining us. And until next time, guys, thank you for listening. Thank you.